1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 28. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When he has done this, Then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to you. My name is Jeffrey Arthurs, and I'm your preacher for the day, your pastor for the day on this resurrection on this Resurrection Sunday. Our topic is Christ as the first fruits. Interesting phrase, huh? First fruits. What does that mean? Well, we're going to get there. It may take a few minutes to get there, but uh, we're thinking of Christ as the first fruits. As an entrance into that topic, uh, let me call your attention to Sarah Winchester. Sarah Winchester inherited the fortune of the Winchester Rifle Company. She believed that the spirits of dead Indians haunted her. These were the Native Americans that were killed with Winchester weapons. She believed that they were waiting to take their full retribution after she died. She went to a medium that told her that she would not die as long as her house was unfinished. She was constructing a house. And so for the next 38 years... She had carpenters constantly at work on her house. It's still there. It's in San Jose, California. You can take a tour of it. It is a marvelous hodgepodge of rooms and additions and staircases that go nowhere and doors that open onto nothing. 
160 rooms. Before the earthquake in San Francisco, San Jose area, 1906, it had seven stories. Today it has four stories. Well, the workman worked, but she died anyway, leaving her house unfinished. I don't know if her fears were confirmed after she died. But I do think that her instinct, this instinct that after death something continues, I think that was correct. Death is a comma. It is not a period. We have an instinct for continuing life. Bodies that are discovered in prehistoric graves, sometimes they find the body or the skeleton arranged in a fetal position, like a baby in the womb. Some historians think that that's an indication that they, that, that culture believed in a second birth, a, a next life, a, a new birth. So according to some historians. In the Sumerian culture, that was in the ancient Middle East, they buried their people in large clay pots, standing upright, fully dressed, ready for the next age, ready to spring out. The ancient Greeks... Would, uh, they believed that the dead person had to cross the river Styx. And they would bury the person with a coin in his or her mouth in order to pay Caron, the boatman, to ferry him across the river. Sometimes they would bury the body with honey cakes to feed Cerberus, the dog that guarded the entrance to Hades. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that these practices stem from an instinctive inability or refusal to accept death as the definitive end of human life. Despite the horrifying evidence of physical decomposition caused by, by death, the belief has persisted that something of the individual person continues to survive the experience of dying. We have an instinct. It seems to be nearly universal that death is not the end. There's more. Philip Yancey, an author, tells about a woman whose grandmother is buried in an Episcopalian cemetery in Louisiana under 150-year-old live oaks. And this woman's grave has a single word on it, waiting. Something else is coming. We have an instinct that after death comes something. But some people don't believe that. 
I think they're in the small minority, but uh, there are people that believe that, and, that the death is the end. My grandfather was one of those people. At the funeral of his son, my father, a very Christian funeral, I mean, there was singing and prayers and rejoicing even in our sadness. My grandfather was on his best behavior, but afterwards, when it was all over, he said to one of my cousins, who later told me, he said to my cousin, don't let them fool you, uh, Sonny. When they put you in the ground, that's it. Apparently, there were some people in the Greek city of Corinth that were saying the same thing. When they put you in the ground, that's it. For example, in our text, verse 12, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? These people in the ancient city of Corinth were saying, resurrection? Come on, you've got to be kidding me. That's a primitive idea. That's just, you know, it's just like a coping mechanism. Resurrection? Dream on. And so in our passage, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, battles this doctrine, this doctrine of no resurrection. He reminds the Corinthians that at least one person, at least one person did rise. His name was Jesus. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Some people may say that there's no resurrection, but the apostle says differently. He says, Jesus rose. But hang on, hang on, we're going too fast. We're, going, we're getting ahead of ourselves. I can imagine some of the Corinthians saying, now just, just hold on there, partner, just hold on. You say that Jesus rose. Prove it. Is there any evidence? I mean, dead people don't often come back to life. It's one thing to assert it. Is there any evidence? And the Apostle Paul says, yeah, yeah, it's a legitimate question. Absolutely. Let me recount for you the facts of history. You want evidence? Well, consider this evidence. He appeared at, you know, after he died. It is finished. They stabbed him in the side. They put him in the grave for three days. They wrapped him up. Then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me. He says, you want some evidence? I don't blame you. He appeared to Peter. You guys know Peter. You Corinthians know Peter. He was here last year, right? He's probably coming again. Talk to him. He appeared to the twelve. One of those twelve was a guy named Thomas. Do you remember Thomas? He came from the state of Missouri. The show-me state. 
the skeptics state. You remember the story? Jesus appeared to the uh, apostles, but he wasn't there. And he said, and then they said, hey, Jesus is alive. And he said, what? What? Are you kidding me? I, I won't believe unless I put my finger into the prints of the nails on his hands, which is awfully gross, don't you think? And unless I put my hand in his side. And then Jesus appeared. And he believed. He appeared to more than 500 people at once. This was not a personal vision, a personal little, you know, hallucination. Groups don't hallucinate together. It's not a group activity. It's been banned in over 40 states. <laughs> the Apostle Paul says, uh, you know, most of these uh, people are still alive. See, he was writing around the year uh, maybe 60-something, and Jesus died around the year 30-something. He says, hey, most of these 500 people are still alive. Talk to them. Jesus really did rise. He appeared to James. The Apostles, he appeared to me. You Corinthians want proof? I don't blame you. I'm declaring to you the facts of history. You Corinthians may argue that the dead do not rise, but let me tell you, at least one person rose. (laughs) His name was Jesus. Do you guys understand that Christianity is the declaration of truth? of historical fact. Christianity is not primarily a system of good advice. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. We believe Christianity not only because it's good and because it helps us. We believe it because it's true. And the cornerstone of this faith we call Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, now, the Apostle Paul then goes on in our passage to talk about two implications. Implications of the no resurrection position and implications of the Jesus did rise position. He says, okay, well, let's just assume the first. Let's assume nobody rises from the dead. Let's just assume that including Jesus, you know, when they put you in the ground, that's it. What are the implications of that? Let's spin that out. What are the implications of the positive position that Jesus did rise? All right, let's take the negative one first. The implications, if he did not rise, then our faith is nothing. It's empty. That's what he says. Verses 14, 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. It means empty. We are misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people. Most to be pitied. So the first implication of this this no resurrection position is the apostles are lying. Uh, We are misrepresenting God. You know, James is going around and Thomas is going around and Cephas, Peter's going, I'm going around. Jesus is alive. And they know he's not alive. They're just making the thing up. 
I don't know why they're misrepresenting. Maybe I don't know if they want power over people. Like, let's get a new social movement guy. I don't know. But, but that's what you're saying when you say Jesus did not rise. The apostles are lying. Verse 17, but Christ has not been raised. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. See, our claim in Christianity, or our belief is, our sins were laid upon someone else. My sin upon his shoulder. And he died, and with him died all of our sins, and they were punished God punished His own Son. It pleased God to crush His own Son because of our iniquities. And those sins were dealt with and paid and we were justified. And when Jesus came back to life, we were included in that fact also. Look, He's saying, you guys, if Jesus didn't rise, your sins sins are still clinging to you. You know, this guy, Jesus, he doesn't have the power to take away sins. That's an implication of the no resurrection position. Verse 19, he just says we're miserable. If, if, if we believe in Jesus only, you know, for this life, not, not for the coming life, the resurrected life, then, man, this is a lousy life. We are most to be pitied. Here's the idea. We have a natural longing, like a, a natural instinct, like Sarah Winchester and the, the bodies, the, pre, uh, the fetal position. We, we have this natural instinct that there's more. But if that instinct is wrong, if that instinct can't be fulfilled, well, that stinks. It's like conditioning a dog to love a certain food, some savory food. It has an instinct, it has, it's hard, it just gravitates to a certain food. And, uh, and you offer the food. And its mouth is watering. And you take it away. Oh, poor dog. It would have been better off if it you know, didn't have that desire and you didn't tempt it. We are like children, young children who long for a mother. It's a natural instinct to be protected and warm and cuddled. And But these kids are thrust into a universe with no mothers. We are to be pitied, miserable, Author Ray Bradbury captures this dynamic of, you know, having an instinct but not being able to fulfill it. He wrote a story called In a Season of Calm Weather. It's a story of just a normal guy. His name is George Smith. And he's just a normal guy, except for one, one unusual thing. He loves art. He's a little bit of a, a connoisseur, a little bit of a lay expert on art. Just like goes to galleries, he just loves art. Well, of course, he can never afford, you know, uh, one of the masterpieces. He especially loves Picasso. Oh, he has an instinct. He, he gravitates. If only I could have a Picasso, I could never have. A well, George Smith is on vacation 
uh, on the Mediterranean in the south of France. And George Smith is walking along the beach and, you know, he's having a nice time. And up ahead, he sees a crazy little guy kind of dancing and kind of hopping around and bending over and in the sand. And he gets up closer and he sees that the guy's actually drawing in the sand. He has a stick. And uh, he, he observes his work and then he draws some more. And it's a big, uh, you know, big art project he's drawing there. And then it strikes George Smith. It's Picasso. It's, it's him. He's here in the south of France and he looks at what he's drawing. And it's not just some little doodle thing. It's, it's this mythical scene of centaurs and, and, uh, and gods and goddesses. And, 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 and he watches Picasso and he's drawing. And Picasso gets done and he looks over his work. He tosses his stick and walks away. And there George Smith is with his very own Picasso. But what to do? What to do? Because the tide's coming in. And it's... I, I know. And he runs back to his hotel room to get a camera. He's going to take a picture of it and then he'll have a permanent, you know, Picasso, his own Picasso. And he runs back and he can't find his camera. And where is it? And as he's coming back, the tide comes in. It's gone. If you have an instinct, a desire, if, uh, uh, an, an intuition, the Bible puts it this way, if He has set eternity in our hearts, but if there is no eternity, if there is no resurrection, then there is nothing else. If they put you in the ground and that's it, pity us. And that is the implication of this no resurrection position. You see, Christians base their lives on the historical fact that this man named Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is God Himself in human form. And He lives today. And He is present with us. And we serve Him. And we love Him. And we sacrifice for Him. And we deny ourselves the pleasures of sin for a season. And we sacrifice our money because it's really His money. And we, we root our lives and arrange our lives under the Lordship of Christ. We volunteer for these special hardships. But if He's dead... We are more to be pitied than other people who say there is no resurrection. And those are the implications of the no resurrection position. But the Apostle Paul insists that Christ did rise. And let's turn the corner there. Let's look at this second position. If Christ did rise, then we have hope. Jesus is the first fruits of a coming harvest. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those 
who have fallen asleep. And there's our phrase, the first fruits. Interesting phrase. Obviously, it's an agricultural uh, metaphor. And it takes us back to the worship in the temple, the sacrificial system of the temple. You know they sacrificed lambs and goats and, you know, different things. Well, one of the things they did was at the harvest time, whether it was barley or, you know, wheat or grain or grapes and, you know, whatever, whatever you were harvesting, you would bring the first fruits, the first, first portion of the harvest, and you would present it to God. It's a sacrifice. You would give it to God at the temple. Now, that was an act of faith. You can imagine in an agricultural culture, you've lived through the winter, your, your supplies have gone down, you haven't been able to grow anything, you haven't been able to harvest anything, and then, woohoo! Harvest time! Yes, we're going to have food again! And what do you do with the first part of that food? You give it away. That was an act of faith. That was a sacrifice to do that for God. It was an act of faith, though, because you believed God will provide the rest of the harvest. Okay? Jesus is the first fruit of a coming resurrection. Jesus is the first offering to God of a great harvest. The harvest is you and me. If you believe in Jesus, Christ is the first fruits of a coming great harvest. The dead in Christ will rise. Your instinct can be, it will be fulfilled. Death is not the end. Reunions will take place. Pain will cease. Evil will be put down. How do we know that? Because Christ rose. He's the first down payment. First, uh, first fruit of a great coming wave of resurrection for those who believe in Jesus. Therefore, for the Christian, death is called sleep. It's a nice way to say it, huh? It's a euphemism, a nice way to say something harsh. We fall asleep. In the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, death, he considers death actually to be gain. Wow. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't suicidal and depressed. Well, if only I could die. He, he just said, you know, this life is good and the next life is even better. <laughs> to die is gain. He said in verse, in Philippians chapter 1, he said, it is actually my desire here in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, death has lost its sting. Oh, it still buzzes, still bothers us, Ooh, it frightens us, but, you know, it doesn't have any sting. Because we just fall asleep, and one day we will be resurrection, res resurrected with Christ, the first fruits. Frank Peretti is an author who tries to capture this idea of death has lost its sting. Peretti tells the story of a father and his little daughter who are driving down a busy road. It's full of traffic. 
The father's concentrating. The little girl is buckled into her car seat. And the little girl is deathly afraid of bees. She has some kind of phobia. She just freaks out when bees come around. Okay, he's driving, and they're going down the road, and it's a nice day like this, and they have the windows down, and a bee gets in. It's going around, and she freaks out. Daddy, daddy, daddy! She freaks out, and he's trying to calm her down, but, you know, all this traffic is coming, and he's driving. He manages to get his hand on the bee, up at the, the windshield, kind of kind of corners it up there. And, and he's driving, and, and she kind of calms down, and, okay, that's good. And he takes his hand away, and it's still alive. She freaks out again, and he says, he says, honey, 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 look, look, look at my hand. I've taken the sting. The bee has stung him. The stinger is still there. It can buzz, but it can't hurt you. That's the Christian position for those who believe in Jesus. Oh yeah, it can buzz. Oh yeah, it's sad. Oh yeah, death is an enemy. But it cannot touch your soul. The deepest part of you. The part that will live on. The part that is destined for a coming resurrection. It can buzz. But it can't really hurt you. Before Columbus sailed, the Europeans thought that the world ended somewhere out there beyond Gibraltar. The royal motto of Spain was Ne plus ultra. Nothing more beyond. Beyond this point, there is nothing more. Beyond the boundary of our realm, beyond somewhere out there past Gibraltar, that's it, that's it. We are the sum total of reality. And then Columbus sailed, and they had to adopt a new motto, and today the motto of the country of Spain is plus ultra, plenty more beyond, even though you cannot see it. Before the resurrection, we may have thought There's nothing more beyond the grave. But now we know there is much more beyond the grave. Christ has risen as the first fruit of a coming resurrection. And those who believe in Him, those who are His disciples, those who have oriented their lives in faith following Him, He shares that resurrection life. And now for us, there's plenty more beyond. And that is the Christian's hope. Heavenly Father, thank you that in your power, mercy, wisdom, and grace, 
you raised again your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Death has no final word over Him and over us if we believe in you. Help us to do it. Help us to believe in you, to cling to you by faith, and to live in hope. In Jesus' name, amen.